church. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, I'd like to welcome all of you, especially our visitors, and uh, if you would, uh, let's take a look at the backs of our bulletins and uh, go over some of the announcements. First of all, this is not in the announcement, but how we would like to, for us to have a, a short meeting after the worship in reference to our Good News Club. He has a, he's a brief us on that and probably give us some information on that. He said it'd only take about five minutes. So those of you who are interested, uh, please uh, just hang around just about a few minutes. It'd be in the fellowship hall. Also, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, the, uh, the, the uh, deacon's offering will be taken uh, uh, during the uh, hymn of preparation at the end of our service. Our choir practice will be today uh, at five o'clock. Anyone who's interested in singing, anyone who loves to sing, we just encourage you to come out and sing with us. It'll be a true blessing, and uh, uh, it's been a while since we've had our choir, so we're all kind of rusty, but we want all of you to come and be with us as we practice and prepare to, to lead our, our church in singing. And uh, we, I can't stress it too much how welcome you are and how much we need you. Uh, the women will meet at the church study. Uh, is coming up this Tuesday morning at 1030. And again, uh, at uh, 6.30 uh, in the evening. This is this Tuesday. It's, it's next Tuesday. Second Tuesday. All right. Beg your pardon. <laughs> and it will be uh, in a week from Tuesday. <laughs> All right. The uh, Wednesday night fellowship is at 6 o'clock. Uh, that comes up every week. And uh, we have a great time of fellowship. It's a time that our children, especially set aside for our children and encouraging them. And just, uh, we have a, a, a girls club and they're working very hard to establish a boys club. And so we just want uh, everyone to come out and take a part in that. And so we have a great time every Wednesday evening. Uh, the, uh, uh, they have home study uh, on uh, Thursdays. It's during the afternoon from one to five. And uh, if those of you who may be interested, uh, contact uh, Denny, the pastor's wife, uh, for any information on that. Our Thursday evening Bible study is every Thursday evening at 6.30, and uh, we are going through the Bible. Uh, we hope to, well, we may not get to it in a year, but it'll, it'll, we'll be trying. But I have a feeling that it'll be two years before we get through the Bible. 
All right, the Sunday school classes are for all ages, and we want you to, we encourage you to come to that. It's just a wonderful time of worship. We're going to study. We have three adult classes and also three children's classes, and so you're encouraged to come out and take part in that, be with us uh, at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings uh, leading into the worship hour. The men's Bible, uh, a weekly Bible and breakfast is every Wednesday morning now at 9 o'clock, and it's in the fellowship hall. Men, though, you're encouraged to come to that for a fine time of, of study and, and worship and uh, fellowship. Uh, if, if any of you need pastoral counseling, please contact uh, Pastor Chris. He'll be glad to set up a schedule with you and, and talk with you about anything that may be on your heart. Have I missed any announcements? Yes. That's the 29. Okay. Clay, did you have something? No, Trey, Trey, he was pointing at you. All right, Trey. Okay. Uh, are there any other announcements? There is one thing, probably, uh, uh, Helen didn't mention it to me, but she, uh, she probably uh, would like to thank all of those who came out and gave her a hand yesterday during the, the sale. I understand <laughs> that uh, she, she got uh, almost $600 uh uh, during the sale. So uh, we appreciate all of those who took a part and helped with that. If you would now, I'll, I'll share with you our, our uh, call to worship. Uh, we'll prepare our hearts for worship as I read uh, the call to worship. It comes from uh, Psalm 12, verse 1. Say, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you privileged us to come into your house this morning. We're here by your grace, dear Lord. And in this time of worship, equip us to be your upright followers. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our opening hymn this morning is hymn 30. If you would turn with me to 30, we'll, we'll stand and sing Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise.
inside cover of your hymnal, and we will uh, we will confess our faith by the Apostle Creed. What is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Maybe seated. At this time, if you would look to the side of the, your your bulletin, and I have a question from uh, the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, and I will I will read the question, and then Unison, if you would uh, give us the answer. How did God create man? page uh, 574 in your uh, pew Bibles, uh, we will read uh, and have our responsive reading this morning from Psalm 12. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Shemiah, a psalm of David, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart to speak. May the Lord cut off the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, Lord, our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from the generations forever. This is God's word for God's people. Praise be to God. People of God, good morning. 
Let us first have a time of confession where we set our hearts and minds apart to God for the time of the service. And at this time also, we as a people of God will confess our corporate sins. Christian, do you believe that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. Then I declare to you what the scriptures declare, that if you have leaned upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and sought him, then your sins are forgiven and you are restored to your God. Lord God, we also bring before you our particular petitions, the things that are on our hearts and minds. We know that you know all things, and so you even lead us to pray about things that we don't even understand. Those of us that are struggling with different cancers, Lord God, Ava Roten, Barbara Minor, Peggy Ford, Robert Michelinie, Luann Paris, Billy Paris, Helen McBride, Johnny Baker, for all of these, Lord God, we pray for your special intercession, for your healing of their bodies and the encouragement of their souls, that you would lighten their struggle, Lord God, and give them great strength in the name of Jesus Christ. We also pray for the general well-being of Jack and Barbara Anthony, Cynthia Hogan, Aileen Crude, Elaine Garner, for Alice, David, and Murray Raver, for Mike and Christopher Smith, for these, Lord God, for your healing and encouragement and strengthening in the name of Christ. For those of our number that are in the military, Lord God, for Stephen and Gage, but also for Jose and Ryan, that you would be with them and strengthen them and protect them. We pray for Lizzie and Seguk, who are moving to Huntsville for IT classes, and pray that you would just be with them and bless them. We also pray, Lord God, for Terry Webb's cousin who's in ICU in Texas and pray that you would bless her and be with her and heal her. For Philip Paris for the surgery on his finger that it heals well. We pray for Pam Puckett's sister, Cheryl, and the, struggle, and the health struggles that she's having, that all of these things would be resolved well and that she would be kept safe. We pray for Bob Bickley and for Susie, Lord God, that you would encourage them and strengthen them and heal them. We pray for Stricky, who's been struggling with double pneumonia, Lord God, for her healing and well-being. We pray for the Smith Hearts as they're traveling, Lord God, that you would be with them and keep them safe. We pray for the Penningers who are home today, that you would give them a time of rest and renewal and encouragement. For any that aren't here today, Lord God, we pray that you would bless them and encourage them. For any unspoken prayers that are on these lists today, Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that you would just be with your people, that you would be a physician to us and a healer and a father. For those of us that are struggling with different financial difficulties, we know that you always intend to bless your people. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would encourage us in this way to be able to take care of ourselves and our families. You know the jobs that we should have you know the money that you want to bring. We 
We also pray, Lord God, for any unspoken concerns in regard to health, that you would just provide health and well-being and healing, that you would guide those that are ministers of the state for presidents and kings and those in positions of power and authority, that they would guide according to your royal law, and also for your church here and around the world, that your gospel would be preached and that many would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray all these things praying the prayer that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please arise as we sing hymn number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
one for now we receive the offering. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we offer these gifts to you with the thankful hearts. Uh, may they extend uh, the work of your kingdom uh, in the church, in your community, and throughout this beautiful world of which you have made. In Jesus' name, amen. some uh, note handouts for anybody that want them. It's just verses because we're going to go over a lot of verses today. And when we go over a lot of verses, I don't want to be confusing. But, uh, you know, just like anybody else, I do polling. And I ask around and I ask people things like, what do you think the kingdom of heaven is? The kingdom of heaven. Is it like an important thing in the Bible? Or, you know, what is that? And still, today, we get a little mystified by it. We all seem to know it's super important, that it's a big deal in the Bible. But when we have to define it, it gets a little hard. It gets a little hard. Well, a couple of the things we went over last week in going over the clauses of the Lord's Prayer about the kingdom of heaven is Matthew 3, 2, which says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist. And then, as soon as his ministry started, he baptizes Jesus and in Matthew 4, 8, the devil tempts Jesus with the kingdom, saying, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And one of Christ's overcoming of the temptation of the devil was that he would not submit to Satan in order to receive the kingdoms of the world. He went through the ordeal of the cross. And also the first line of Jesus's public ministry, all the way back in Matthew 4. So Matthew is the first gospel that's very early in the New Testament. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's still a little bit of a different idea, this whole idea of kingdom and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this and the kingdom of that. It comes up so much that it's confusing, right? Here's from a little note that I found from one of the theologians online. Kingdom of God is seen many times in the New Testament. We see the phrase kingdom of God heavily used in the New Testament. According to the experts, the phrase The phrase or mention of kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appears 86 times in the Gospels. Also, Acts through Revelation contains references to it. So it just comes up again and again and again. A lot of the time, when you see something repeated again and again in the Bible, it's for emphasis, right? It really wants you to get how important it is. But it can't be mentioned this many times for emphasis. All the things that are mentioned for emphasis have to be for emphasis to emphasize this. Because this is what the entire New Testament is about, the kingdom of God. It says, in those books, we see a few distinctions and definitions on the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5 and 7, which is what we're studying, we see Jesus talk about how to enter the kingdom. And later in chapter 12, Jesus talks about the truth of the kingdom of God. He also talks about sharing the kingdom with the disciples. And finally, bringing the kingdom to those who are blessed. Because you remember, even in talking about it, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, and what's that like? He says, blessed are those. Blessed are who? Well, I would think blessed are us. A little later in Matthew four twenty three, he went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now let's not pass by that he calls the gospel. I know this is a gospel crowd. I know all of you, you're all about the gospel, Right? Notice that in the Bible, it calls it the gospel of what? The kingdom. It's not just the gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel and the kingdom, they're like this. They're tight. Many of us grew up in traditions, including myself, where they said, but the, God, the kingdom can't really be the church and that kind of thing because it's spiritual. And you can see the church. But can you? Really, you can see the building, but you can't see the church. Everything in the Bible that is spiritual in its essence also has a physical manifestation. Have you noticed that? Like he gives us bread and wine to talk about the Lord's Supper, right? It's a spiritual event, but he gives us these physical things to look at. In baptism, he's he's symbolizing salvation and death and resurrection, but he gives us some water, right? Many times with the church and things like that, it is a spiritual event. It's a spiritual body of believers, but he does give us a people that gather together to look at. So it's not uncommon for there to be a physical manifestation of a purely spiritual thing. It's part of the distinction of being in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and a kingdom on earth. It doesn't mean there are no kingdoms on earth, but there is no kingdom on earth that is exactly identical to the kingdom of heaven, right? As we go on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we went over when we went on all those blessings, right? The Beatitudes, that what he's really talking about is what the people of God are like. In Matthew 5, 18 through 20, he says this, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not a good description, but it's still about the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's an entry into the kingdom of heaven. And there's a way to not be in the kingdom of heaven. When it's talked about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, he's talking about a specific identifiable people. Not only that, but there is an ethic to the kingdom. We'll talk about that not next week, but the week after that. There's not only a way to identify what the kingdom is and what the kingdom is in its essence, and also the way we identify it in its external or physical manifestation, but there's a code. Has there ever been a country under earth that hasn't had a set of laws, right? Let me ask you this, who've been to your law classes and that kind of thing. What's the highest law in the United States? Constitution, right? Constitution is the highest law. What happens if a law is contrary to the United States Constitution? Goes to the Supreme Court, and ideally they kick it out, unless it's like a good law, and then they'll, I don't know. We get a lot of trouble with the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court gets to decide whether or not one of the laws we make is constitutional or not. And sometimes they're a little subjective on that. They're a little sketchy on exactly what the law is. But we do have a written document that we say is our highest law and all the other laws have to submit to it, right? Well, there's a code to the kingdom. There's a way of life. There's a way we're supposed to be. There are rules to the kingdom. There are these things to the kingdom, and they are, quite frankly, easily identifiable. Let me throw one out there for you. Murder. There's a law in the Old Testament, and it comes up again in the New Testament, that you may not lie in wait for your neighbor's innocent blood. How many of you are for that one? But it's a law of the land, not a law of Christianity, not a law of the Bible, right? No, it's a law of the land because it was first a law of God, right? And we all like that one, especially if it's us that's on the chopping block, right? So there is an actual code to the kingdom that we actually have to learn. Because if we're going to be in the kingdom, we want to be obedient to the kingdom. We want to be a good representation and ambassador of the kingdom of God. As we go on a little farther, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to remember that when Jesus is saying this, who did the people think were the most righteous people around? Scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because they fastidiously obeyed the law and every jot and tittle of it. They obeyed it so much, they over-obeyed it, right? They wrote an entire new set of laws that went on for thousands and thousands of pages that had other things that weren't the law of God and sometimes even negated the law of God in their pursuit to obey the law of God. Jesus never criticized them for their obedience to the law of God. Notice that. He never said, you know, you guys don't murder enough people or you don't commit enough adultery. He never said that. He didn't say they were wrong for being obedient to the law of God. He said they were wrong for when they negated the law of God through their extra traditions created only by men. That was the problem. Now, there has to be some kind of way to be more righteous than these guys in the kingdom. And we will talk about that too. We have our own theological tradition here 
you know, it goes back to the apostles and the prophets, but we have 2,000 years of church history. I'm sure all of you have read some kind of a history of the church to find out where it is. I remember the biggest time of change in my theological life when I was about 22 or 23 is there were all kinds of churches and all kinds of denominations, and I grew up in a few of them and that kind of thing, but I wanted to find out where I fit in. Who are the people that believe that the same thing, the Bible's saying the same things that I think it's saying, right? And so I read all of the church fathers, and I read the history of the church. It wasn't until I started reading, well, I read Augustine early on, and he really resonated with me, but quite frankly, I had a hard time understanding what he was saying about half the time. That was about 380 AD that he was writing his stuff. Then you get to these guys, Martin Luther and John Calvin and all these others that their whole thing was the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. They were like wary of tradition and the ideas of men. It was all, if it ain't in the Bible, it ain't really useful, right? And that's where I kind of found the guys that I agree with what they're saying the Bible says is pretty much what I think the Bible says, right? And around that time, they wrote this Westminster Confession of Faith in Westminster Abbey in England, in the 1640s, and it's still the confession of this church, even though it's been 380 years, right? We are still going down through time. Here's the thing. You have to agree with every jot and tittle of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the way you do the Bible. You do not. It's a mere document written by men, but you'd have a really hard time finding a better small 32-chapter, maybe 20-page assessment of what the entire Bible says than this document which was always the most popular in the United States of America and is probably the best document written by the church in the last 500 years. You'd have a hard time finding a better simple assessment of what does the Bible say? You know, here's the thing. We can hold up the 1,200-page Bible every time we have to find something out, or we can listen to what people have said about it. All the teachers that have come through history, they're all valuable to us. We need to respect them all and agree with the ones that were right, according to our best understanding, Right? Really, at the end of the day, every one of you has to decide what you think God said in the Bible and your interpretation of it. I'm not saying it's all left up to the individual, but everybody reads the Bible and says, I think God's saying this. We all do, don't we? The genius of Protestantism, why there's Protestantism, is so we can have churches down the street and think they're all Christians, but we don't want to go to church with them. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, right? It sounds terrible, but you can have a serious enough agree disagreement about a theological matter that you think other brothers and sisters that are true and real brothers and sisters are doing something that you disagree with so much that you don't want to participate. And you don't want dissonance in the kingdom, and you don't want fragmentation, and you, won't, you don't want anger. So real, true Christians tend to go to different churches based on what they believe the Bible's saying in good conscience. Whenever you believe the Bible saying something, you might believe that it's saying this 30%, or you might believe 90%, right? There's only a pretty small amount of doctrines in the Bible that I can say I believe that that's what the Bible's saying 100%, right? And we pretty much find out what those are in the Apostles' Creed. But you have a duty to change your behavior when you believe something 51%. If you're pretty sure that it's what the Bible's teaching, that's when you know you have a duty to act. You might not be convinced. You might get to the place where you're like 30 or 40% sure that's true, but, you know, how are you going to impose that on someone else's conscience and say, you have to do this? What if I'm 60% convinced? Should I then make everyone else do it? 
You see how the church really has a limitation in how hard they should push everyone to conform. Now, those of you that have a Roman Catholic background will remember you had to do it all. You didn't even have to understand it. You had a duty to obey the church at all times. That should make us very uncomfortable. And the idea that people have to be a member or baptized into this church in order to be true Christians, that idea should make us very uncomfortable, shouldn't it? Because, of course, now one of the most common in this area of the United States, because this is the only area where this is really a thing, is like baptism, right? I had a conviction in my heart, mind, and soul that when I read all of Scripture and studied the issue for decades, that even my children should be baptized. If I went to a Baptist church, which I grew up in and spent the first 25 years of my life in, they would not baptize them. I became so convinced that I had to go to a church that would baptize them so that my conscience would be right before God because I would feel like I weren't doing something that he called me to do. So do you understand how you can completely believe that even your parents are Christians and such that raised you in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but there can be an issue that becomes so important that you got to go somewhere else. We all understand that, right? The reason I want to bring this up again is I don't want any of us to bring on that air or that sentiment that we are the one true church and everybody else are the heathen. That's just unhealthy, bad thinking, right? We need to consider all other true professing Christians as true professing Christians from whatever background they come. If they believe the gospel, that's about it. Now, they also understood this sentiment 500 years ago, and they wrote it in this clause of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the statement of faith of this church. The visible church, talking about the visible church, the one you can see, right? Which is also Catholic or universal. Remember, Catholic just means universal. All the Christians everywhere. Under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law. You have to remember that it was kind of confined to the nation of Israel before the coming of Christ. Consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. Not those that profess a false religion. It's not professing universalism. And of their children. And this is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, that ordinary clause happens a few times in the confession because they want you to understand, of course, people can be saved outside the visible church. It happens all the time. Most of the people that are saved are saved outside the visible church. Then they come to the visible church and join the visible church. As a matter of fact, we don't actually invite people to become members unless we think they're already believers. So you come into the kingdom initially through the invisible aspect of faith. By faith, you close with God and the Holy Spirit comes and fills you so that you believe and know the true God and you are ready to leave the old life behind. And so then joining the visible church, the visible kingdom of God is only the expression of your relationship to the invisible God. There's an external manifestation of the invisible reality. Let's take a look at chapter 11 of Matthew. As we go on in this, there's this time when Jesus is dealing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in the joint. He preached a little too well, and they came and got him. I can always tell that I've never preached that well because I've never spent a single day in jail. 
But John was good. Chapter 11, from about verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Because remember, everybody went out to be baptized by John. It was a baptism of repentance, right? And it was stunning to them. It was different from anything they'd ever seen. In regard to the major sign of being in the kingdom spiritually, in the old covenant, what was the number one sign of being the member of the people of God? Circumcision, right? You got it on the eighth day, they cut you, they gave you a scar, and you always knew you were a member of the kingdom, at least representationally and externally. Now, all of a sudden, John's out there calling adults to repentance. So it was weird to them. It was as shocking to them as if he called us, who've been in the church all our lives and we've been baptized, to have some new sign, right? Well, there's a new sign coming because there's a shift. There's a change coming through everything. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. You know how pastors are. So soft and weak in their hands. Never done a day of work in their life, right? You have to go see one of those guys. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Then he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about there's going to be a change. There's going to be a shift. It's coming right now. You can see it coming. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, let me tell you guys an incredibly different reading of that verse. I'll read it to you again. You've all heard it before, but you might not have thought about it. From the days of John the Baptist until now. How long is that? It's only a few years, right? The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. There was a translation that happened in the Geneva Bible that was carried over into the King James Bible that puts the word suffered in here, suffered violence. And what they meant by it in those days is not what we mean by it in these days. So most of you have grown up thinking this probably means something like people attack the kingdom of God. We're the kingdom of God and people are, are attacking it with violence or something like that. But he's saying just in between the time of his baptism and John the Baptist's ministry and then the kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Do you really think that men by violence can take the kingdom of God? That ain't what that verse means, is it? Many of the translations that are happening right now, and I happen to agree with them, understand that suffered in the King James does not mean to suffer. It just means it happened. Suffereth thee to go down and buy a cow. Yeah, you know the whole language, right? It means that the Christian is violently aggressive about getting into the kingdom. It says the kingdom of God advances by violence. Not that violence. It advances violently. Everybody who wants into the kingdom of God, they're willing to do anything to get into it. One of the things that backs this up is every one of the different analogies, the parables that Jesus gives, is about people being desperate to get into the kingdom. Man was walking through a field. He found some gold in the field. He went and sold everything he had to get that, right? Because he wants some gold. What do you want? What is the kingdom of light God like to you? It is so important that you would do anything to get it. The kingdom of God advances violently, and violent men take hold of it. You've got to decide whether or not when the kingdom of God is presented to you, 
You're violent to take hold of it. You're aggressive. You want it so bad. You want it more than anything. You'll give up anything else in this life to get that kingdom. You want in. That's what this verse is saying. It's not talking about other people attacking the kingdom. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent men take it by force. Let's go on to chapter 13. From verse one, the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and crowds gathered about him so that the boat, he got into the boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. He goes on page after page with these parables of the kingdom. This is the first one and perhaps the most important and perhaps the key to understanding all the others. Notice that he sat down. Jesus hardly ever taught anything without sitting down. In those days, the pastor would come up and they would sit down. Why do I have to stand? (laughs) I don't know, but we stand. They sat. Uh, uh, In those days, he would sit and y'all would stand. Whole sermon, long sermon, 12, 15, legs hurting, y'all would be standing, there were no chairs, right? From the hillside. But he sat down, and as he sowed, there was a sower. We all know what a sower is. This is an agricultural area. Some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky soil, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but the sun rose and they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, sometimes a hundredfold or 60 or 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the great thing about this parable is that instead of us having to interpret it, who does the interpretation? Jesus. So no matter what you think this means, If Jesus is coming up with a different interpretation, I'm saying you go with his, right? Let's move to verse 18, and he's going to explain the parable. This whole section between that verse and verse 18 is when he explains why there are parables. The first thing that he says is, I give you parables because I want you all confused. I want the people that don't get it, that don't want to know it, that won't struggle with it, that won't reach for it. I want them to stay confused and walk away frustrated. He says, People have said many times, Jesus gives us parables so that we can understand. He doesn't really. He gives us parables so lots of people won't understand. Isn't that heavy? In verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields one, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So his analogy is about the way the kingdom works. Who's the sower? Jesus or the preacher or whoever's given the word, right? Is there a distinction in the kinds of seed being given out? 
Seed's the same for everybody, right? It's all the same seed. Where's the difference? Soils. Good soil and there's bad soil. This is a true thing, right? You either got good soil or you got bad soil. But some people received it with joy. Now, this will be scary to you because you might have received it with joy, right? Every once in a while, we see someone that receives it with joy. But as soon as things get hard or uncomfortable or they get confronted with the law of the kingdom or there's persecution, they dry up and they blow away like the wind, right? So the mere giving out of the message and the mere fact that people respond to it is never sufficient. There's this thing that happens when somebody receives it and they love it and they embrace it and it becomes a part of their mind, heart, soul, and being, and they produce fruit. They produce fruit. When we come back next week, we'll talk about how fruity you need to be to be in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, please help us to understand your kingdom, Lord God. Make us so hungry for it, Lord God. Make us starving for it so that we would fight our way into it, that nothing would be able to get in our way of closing in union with you. We praise you for all the blessings that you give us in Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing number 77 for 4,000 tongues to sing.
probably yeah. 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 Yeah.